so many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stop talking and just stare at the radio. It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. What a beautiful, crisp day to make some radio on. And thank you to Joe Brighton for texting in. So, Brighton Sands actually. Joe just texted in to say, loved the last DJ, beautiful program, and that last DJ was Alex Pye. So you can uh, check out all of the songs that she played throughout the hour on the website underneath her morning slot on Thursdays. And the last track she played for you was Let Me Have Just One by Isles out of Melbourne, Australia. Beautiful, beautiful song. And uh, my guest on Out of the Box today is Nick Newling. He manages a website called Biteback. It's a positive psychology website and a great resource for the mental health of high school aged kids. And Nick has been through quite a lot, especially during those high school years. Some of the things we talk about in the next hour are a bit intense, uh, but that will be offset by your ridiculous taste in music, Nick Newling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to uh, sharing all this nonsense, silliness, and maybe a little bit of seriousness with you. So it should be quite a journey, I think so. It's, it's going to be banger after banger for this hour. And the first one we've got is by a band called Blink-182. Maybe you'll recall them. But I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your early life before we start playing this song. Because uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an ode to a couple members in your family. Um, where, where did you grow up in Sydney, Nick? I grew up in Sydney in the Northern Beaches. And that was a pretty... Well, it's a place to live that was sort of quite different to what I'm like. I'm not sort of the most like beachy kind of person, but you know, I had a lot of fun growing up. It was it was a bit of a, a simple life, but pretty happy life. Um, two really great parents, two really great brothers and yeah, pretty happy little kid. Bit of a weird kid, but mostly pretty happy. Yeah. Your mum sounds pretty cool. I heard she used to kidnap you from school. She was she was a habitual kidnapper. Her um her whole thing was well, she was totally committed to us as kids. She she pretty much uh, stopped her career in journalism to look after us and to hang out with us. She kept me back a year from starting kindy because he wanted to spend more time with me. Oh, that's okay. But yeah, the kidnap day thing was she just created this sort of institution of every year she'd send us to school and on a particular day without any sort of notice, just turn up to our classroom and go, I'm kidnapping Nick or kidnapping Ben or, or Christopher and then we'd just go to do something really fun. Awesome. Mm. So uh, this, this one's a bit of an ode to how cool your mum is. Why are, we, why are you playing this song? Um, yeah, cool, cool, very cool. So we, we at the height of, uh, of Blink-102's fame, my, my brother Christopher was absolutely nuts about him. And so me being a couple of years younger was also, you know, by association, nuts about them as well. So in, I was in year seven and we're in a, a family holiday up in the Gold Coast and we heard a rumour that... Blink-182, you know, the Beatles of the modern age were <laughs> were staying at the same hotel we were, and so were um, the Chili Peppers, apparently. So we were incredibly excited about this. We wanted to kind of stake them out, and so we uh, put our detective hats on and went to the front desk. We're like, hey, is Blink-182 here? What room are they staying in? Like... <laughs> They're like, oh, damn, like as yeah, if, as if, yeah, no one had thought of that technique before. Um, so we were kind of bummed we couldn't find them. But then we, we were moseying down to the pool and then I see my, <laughs> see my, my mum um, sitting around the pool with 
a bunch of dudes and their girlfriends. And my mum's originally from America, so she's kind of like met these three dudes, um, having no idea who they are, chatting away, saying, "Oh, what are you boys into? Oh, music. Oh, that's lovely. I'm <laughs> I'm from America as well. Isn't that great? Blah blah." And then I'm oh, like, oh, shit, there's Blink-182 and they're talking to my mum. <laughs> so, like, totally embarrassed that, you know, mum, like, kind of walking out there, like, mum, stop talking to Blink-182, you're making me look lame. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, we're the lame ones and mum is kind of, like, in with the cool crowd now. I don't think she even knows that was them to this day, but... It was. Jane Newling, what a mm, woman. What a woman. <laughs> On Out of the Box, Groupie. my guest today is Nick Newling. Is Blink-182. every day on Out of the Box. Amazing. I don't know. I wish you guys had a camera so everyone could see how we're dancing around the studio <laughs> just now. Yeah, I'm a bit sweaty and I forgot to wear deodorant today, so it's a bit gross. But I mean, like, <laughs> Blink-182 does that to you. Anyway, we're um, on FBI Radio right now. My guest today is Nick Newling, and that was Damn It by Blink-182. And as I, I, I might have mentioned in the, uh, in the intro that you didn't have a very uh, straightforward high school era. You had, like, a very rocky time. And it actually was a lot of, a lot of it was to do with your mental health. 
When did you realise that your mental health might not be up to scratch? How old were you? I realised it after my family did. So I was about 13, I was halfway through year seven. So I'd, I was in this high school doing pretty well, really loving life, kind of realised that I wanted to be a vet when I'm older and realising that study is you know, the ticket to get there. And so I was doing really well academically and then six months into year seven, it's kind of crashed completely, just kind of became a totally different person and um, really angry, really sort of agitated and... Um, it was a pretty rough time, I think, because at that time we didn't really talk about mental health. It was sort of not a thing that anyone was meant to have. Mm. <laughs> and that was really challenging for me, kind of going through the whole mental health system from that point on for many years and not really having much guidance to go through it socially. Totally. And I, I guess at that age, you're also at an age where people are just kind of like, oh, well, that's just growing up. They're going through... Well, I guess this is growing up. Yeah, well, yeah. I guess it is. <laughs> yeah. Just all the all the connections there. It's great. Totally. But... um. Then you kind of, you were on the downhill for mm. some time. What was the first point at which you thought that you should talk about this to someone? And who, who did you speak to first? So I spoke to my mum first. My two elder brothers, Ben and Christopher, both had gone through or were going through at the time depression and, and anxiety as well. So it was all kind of happened the same six month period for all three of us boys. So mum saw that, or mum and dad saw that in me. And so they got me to go see a local psychologist near where we grew up. And it was really helpful, but not quite helpful enough. My symptoms were getting a lot worse before they were getting better. And what were your symptoms? Initially, it was mostly anxiety, I think. I was just stressing myself out, which, I mean, it happens all the time with school or uni or work or whatever, but it was getting uncontrollable. It was, um, you know, I'd, I'd pretty much spend all my time studying and kind of just hating myself if I slipped up at all. But then I also got quite depressed. I was... Um, I was taking on all the problems of the world without any sort of reason for doing that. I think the weird thing about my depression is that it came out of nowhere. It wasn't some life event which started it. There wasn't sort of like, oh, your life's so shit, now you should feel bad. It was kind of like, why do I feel bad, you know? But then it it got worse. I started having these symptoms of psychosis as well, so um, hallucinations and delusions and stuff like that. What and kind of hallucinations would you be having? I'd have... A lot of them were auditory. So often hallucinations are auditory or, or visual. You can kind of see things that aren't there or hear things that aren't there. And for me, it was the sort of voices in my head kind of thing, which it's really hard to explain. It's sort of, I think in a way, it's kind of like, you know when you're really, really tired sometimes and you're kind of slipping between awake and sleep and things happen, but they're not really kind of like, huh? what, what was that? Yeah. It's like that, but it's inescapable. But... For me, it was really distressing because um, it was quite an, an agitating sort of angry thing that I couldn't really control. It actually like lost control of my mind, the ability to think. And then, then that made my school grades go down, not being able to focus in school, becoming quite suicidal. And pretty much just went from like scholarship kid to worthless, useless dude within like a year kind of thing. Wow. Mm. And what was your lowest point? And, you know, did it precede you dropping out of school or was that yet to come? I had many low points. <laughs> I think um, the low points went over a, a number of years. This was sort of at this stage was um, sort of late year eight when it was sort of like, okay, now we got to have some sort of serious intervention. I was already on meds, but they weren't really doing anything. But I dropped out years later at, um, I think it was early year 11. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we've got a tractor taken a second, and mm. before we 
play it. It might we might need a little bit of a, a bit of context. Mm-hmm. It's an Alice Cooper track. It is. What a great song. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure has never happened on FBI. <laughs> so you're a first. Congratulations, Nick. Yes. <laughs> so you you were seeing a psychologist for a while, and, and what was his his opinion of your state? What, what kind of conclusions did he come to? I was seeing a psychologist, and he was saying I had anxiety. I saw a GP who was saying I had depression, and I saw a couple of psychiatrists who were saying all different kinds of things. There wasn't really a consensus, um, but it took it took a number of years until I got the right diagnosis. But um, the Alice Cooper song, if you want to know a little bit of info about that, was at a point where I began to embrace the craziness rather than be so fearful of it. And I don't know if that was healthy or not, but it was sort of like I had this massive secret. I can't tell anyone at my school that I'm nuts. <laughs> um, maybe I can sort of enjoy that in some way. Awesome. It's called Inmates. We're all crazy. And you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. Roller 
<laughs> what a track. It was going to be that or Crazy by Britney Spears. So. <laughs> both, both your anthems. <laughs> yeah. <both. laughs> so you, you picked this song by Alice Cooper, which is called Inmates, mm. for more than the reason that it's a celebration of being crazy. Mm. So you, at a time, at this time in your life, you were how old when you were? I was 14 then. <laughs> yeah, 14. Yeah. And it was not okay to stay in school at this point so where where did you end up going in order to get the treatment that you needed i was really struggling to get the right treatment and through no lack of trying uh, my parents were really helpful family was really helpful school was really helpful as well but it just seemed like nothing was working it just seemed we couldn't get the right diagnosis and because i was getting a lot worse and increasingly talking about suicide and just being further and further detached from reality it was decided that I would go to an adolescent psychiatric ward in Sydney so that would mean being pulled out of school and going there full time and so I was really really anxious going into it because it's just so foreign it's so scary it's like everything I know in my school I got all my friends here and blah blah didn't entirely fit into that school anyway I'm not the most like sporty blokey person <laughs> um, but but I still really liked it I liked the, the comfort of it so um, going to this this place called Rivendell the psych ward was incredibly intimidating because I had to make a whole bunch of new friends and I didn't know what they'd be like and I remember one of the most vivid memories I have of, of going there was the very first day I was walking up this driveway and this beautiful beautiful old big building and um it was an old convalescent hospital, I think, in like the World War One or whatever. And yeah, on the um, Parramatta River, I think. Mm, it yeah. yeah, yeah, and and Marie Bashir sort of turned it into this you know, sanctuary for for young people, and oh, I was so scared. And then I, I, there's this girl who I'm still really, really close friends with all these years later, who came up to me and and keeping in mind how much stigma was holding me back, how scared I was of talking about it to my mates because I would think I'm a, a lunatic. She was just like, hey, what's your name, blah, blah, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm Nick, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, what are you here for? I'm like, oh, like, psychosis. She's like, oh, I'm here for depression. Do you want to just, like, go on the trampoline? I was like, yeah. <laughs> like, you don't hate me for that? It's like, no, no, that's all I know. So, like, what I got out of that was I was able, I had permission to speak for the first time about it. I was always hiding it. And it's, it's one of those rare areas of medicine where the only way we really treat it is by talking and listening there's no blood test or brain scans or whatever so I think I learned how to talk about it in that time but at the same time it was horrible because I wasn't getting better and I, a lot of these kids around me became new friends and I learned so much about myself and about them and you know people with different you know cultures and religions and sexual orientations and ages and all that sort of stuff so it was, it was just eye-opening it was brilliant but at the same time I just hated myself and I hated life and I gave up hope in that place because I was originally meant to go there for a few months and then it became nine months and I didn't get any better and everyone else was. At what point did you realise you're not just going to be here for a couple of months? I realised that as as soon as it got to that barrier of you know two or three months, meant to be like one school term, and I was probably worse. I was more suicidal and medication wasn't working um, so they kind of just said, well, give another term. What kind of therapies were they trying when you were there? Because if they don't know what they're trying to diagnose, they must have been trying a whole spate of things. Yeah, so there was always a diagnosis throughout all of this. It was just never the right one until later. So I was being treated for the wrong thing. And it's no, it's no 
lack of people trying. The doctors were kind of, you know, giving it their best effort, but it was just, I think it was really hard for me to talk about. And I just, I think part of it was me not being able to communicate properly. And part of it was them maybe not picking up on certain things and kind of being led down a certain path of questioning. But yeah, I was on, I think I might've had maybe like 20 different meds throughout my teenage wow. years. So as a process of elimination so, uh, goes, you've got totally a lot complicating just, the story. Like, brute force it, but also yeah. a lot of talking therapy and a lot of art therapy. That was really cool. And um, ECT. Yeah. What does that stand for? It stands for electroconvulsive therapy, so shock therapy. And do you, can you tell if this actually helped you when you were at Rivendell? Um, for me, it did not. I think I was actually maybe a little bit after I left Rivendell, but that was a last resort. That was like all the meds haven't worked and I'm kind of getting worse and the last resort is shock therapy and it really is a last resort. That's sort of you don't try that first. Um, and it's not like there's there's a lot of study around ECT, but it's not entirely known how it works, but it's sort of like this may work, it might not work, but we have no other options. Do you want to give it a bill? Um, so do I did. you get a choice? Uh, oh, yeah, no, totally, totally. And my, my doctor consulted with many other doctors going to see if that was the right thing to do, and um, it didn't work. <laughs> didn't. So what's, what's it like then? What What's the process that surrounds getting ECT? So... The process that surrounds it is, well, basically I'd go into a hospital, get a general anaesthetic and be kind of hooked up to a machine which just kind of puts electricity through the brain. And I mean, I'm so going to get the science wrong, but <laughs> I'm going to say it kind of rewires the brain in some way. Look that up because that's not true, but it's something like that. Um, I think the important part to note is that it's not what Hollywood says it is. You kind of look at yeah, the... Yeah, because I'm thinking Beverly Hillbillies right now. Yeah, that's, that's the only one like, I've seen. You know. yeah. But um, no, the it's it's been modernised greatly. Mm. I mean, they have this sort of um, muscle relaxants and it's all very, or completely painless. You completely, it's under a general anaesthetic. So for me, it's kind of just like I went on a bed, knocked out, came back, and then that was it. And that was over a period of maybe a week and a half. So it was really probably more distressing for my parents who had to kind of guide me through it. Because mm. they were so worried about me, because I was speaking really candidly about suicide, and that was sort of like, okay, maybe this will help, and nothing else probably will, and then it didn't work. Mm. I'd be interested to know a little bit more about what your memory of this time is like, not what your actual memories are, but mm. what your memory yeah. is like. Because I know that when you have mental illness and that when you're on meds, that your memories challenge hugely. Yeah. Do you have clear memories, or do you have more lucid moments, and then and then patches that you can't remember? I have forgotten a lot of my life and it's so weird like from you know being a very young kid to early high school having heaps of memories um, really quite detailed vivid memories and then when I started getting ill losing so much of it and that's just the for me it was just the nature of the condition um, a lot of people who have mood disorders don't have that experience but for me I did um, I know ECT is is associated with memory problems for some people but for me that wasn't the case I'd already mm -hmm. had memory problems before that so a lot of chunks are missing so we'll find out a bit more about your actual diagnosis in a second mm. after this song but first I want to actually play the song and ask you why why time warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show <laughs> <laughs> Is this the weirdest mix of songs you've ever had? Yes, like one I can safely say that Great. it is. I'm happy yeah. to hear and that. And it's going to get weirder. So, oh, I mean, if so you're if you're not that. digging the playlist already, <laughs> Stick you'll around. love it. You What's going to happen next? Um, Time Warp was, uh, again, kind of experiencing a whole bunch of different stuff that's not, you know, rugby and cricket in this place. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a song that all the kids would play on the stereo and they just put the Rocky Horror Picture Show on, t- on the telly in the break room and just play it and dance around. I was just like, what is this crazy place? Like, I sort of began <laughs> to embrace the nonsense and I was like, this is kind of fun. And I think, like, you look at the clip of it and it's a whole bunch of people dancing around having a good time and Rivendell was both the best and the worst for me but um that pretty much sums up what the fun parts were like <laughs> all right you listen to FBI 94.5 my guest on out of the box today is Nick Newling my name's Ash Berdebez and here is Time Warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show Let's I just love that this is happening this is so good <laughs> it's a sounding time is fleeting Madness takes its toll, but listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Jump to the left. And then step to the right. With your hands on your hips.
I've got such a clear mental image of my guest on Out of the Box today, Nick Newling, dancing around with a lot of other mentally ill kids in Rivendell, just having a really great time amongst all of the otherwise kind of crazy times. It's just having a good crazy time. It's having a great crazy time, <laughs> embracing it as much as one can. It's fantastic. And yes, that was Time Warp, Time Warp from Rocky Horror Picture Show, one of those songs that really doesn't need an introduction. And so I, I, I guess it's probably time in the show to talk about your brother because mm. you you all grew up um, three brothers together and all of you at different times had a different battle with depression sort of sometimes at the same time sometimes separately your poor mum first of all <laughs> not knowing what has gone wrong mm. but um, your your brother did commit suicide yeah and I guess now is probably a good time to give anyone who's having a struggle lifeline which is 13 11 14 and always good to have that in your phone just in case you or anyone else needs it. But you had been getting a little bit better after Rivendell. Not greatly better, but maybe a bit better. Mm. And what what happened? You went to you went to do a performance at school. You got back into school. Yeah, that's right. So I'd left Rivendell halfway through year nine. Not because I was better, just because it wasn't working really. Needed to try some different approaches. And back at school, trying to integrate back into um, this education system that I couldn't really participate in properly was really difficult. And I had to, well, I felt I had to lie about where I was for nine months. I said I had chronic fatigue and glandular fever rather than, you know, I was in a, in a ward. So. Did people buy it? What's that? Did people buy it? Uh, I, think they, I think they did. I Good. think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty convincing. Um, but a lot of it was having to hide, right? Like there was times I felt incredibly sad and I had to pretend to be happy. And there's also times where I felt incredibly happy and I felt like, well, maybe I have to kind of level myself out and pretend to be a bit sad because I'm meant to be depressed, you know? Mm. So I think the the getting better, the small wins were more like manic highs that I just believed were getting yeah. back to normal again. But So you were you were kind of hiding your illness, but you're hiding in plain sight. You're hiding on the stage. of a, Was it a musical performance, a play? What, what play were you in this I, night? I... You might get the impression I'm really into musical theatre. I was, uh, I was doing <laughs> what? I was doing the Music Man, mm-hmm. and I was playing Mayor Shin, uh, sort of like a Iowa kind of, you know, country thing. You're staring at me like what? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 <laughs> oh, not, quite Rocky not quite Rocky Horror, not quite Rocky Horror. But yeah, so what? To give you a little a little bit of a context of what my brother was up to in his life, he was really into his rugby, very much the kind of jock alpha male dude. I really looked up to him greatly. He's a really, really cool kind of person. And he was struggling more than we thought he was. He was being treated for depression. He was on meds, seeing a doctor, but he never spoke about suicide, where I was really, really candid about it. I'd speak about it quite a lot to my to my mum. I'd sort of tell her that that's on the cards, that the only thing really holding me back is that preemptive guilt of what it would do to my family. And, you know, I'd sort of say things to her like you know when this happens you'll have to sell the house because you'll see me in every room and I actually I actually asked for permission at one stage to do it and obviously she said no but my brother never spoke about it to his doctors or to us he was I think a lot more private about it because he was a lot he was more scared of what would happen to him socially. I think he had more to lose socially and was a bit more of a tough dude. So it was so, a manliness problem that was keeping him from speaking. Totally. I think that was a big part of it. And I think also he was just very anxious. He was very scared, but didn't want to show that, didn't want to show any flaws, any cracks. So 
I was doing a play one night and I came home and it was just the worst point in my life at that point. It was, for whatever reason, having a great sort of time doing this play and then I came back and just sunk into a low and I was lying in bed by myself and just had the phone next to me, the the old cordless landline phone and and I called a mental health, I think it might have been Lifeline or Kids Helpline maybe and I hadn't done that before. I hadn't felt a need to, you know, 11.30 at night say, this is way too much and now it's over and that's what I had to do that night and so they were really, really helpful. I have a lot of respect for those sort of mental health services and they, they helped me through it. And What kind of things do you remember them saying? Is, is it a clear memory? Not at all. I don't even remember the conversation. I remember it was helpful and comforting and, and got me out of that space, but I don't remember anything about it. And I went to sleep and the next day woke up with... I remember I remember this morning very well because the light was pouring in through my curtains and, and usually, because I lived quite far away from school, I'd usually be woken up at like 6 o'clock in the morning when it's dark and I'm like, Bleh. and I was on such heavy meds, I was like, Bleh, for like five more hours of tiredness. Um, but this morning, I wasn't woken up and I was like, oh, that's weird. And the phone was next to me and my, my account of this differs slightly to mum's. I'm probably wrong in my memory of it, but <laughs> what I think happened was the phone rang and it was some doctor who's like, you got to put your mum on the phone. I'm like, meh, meh, meh. He's like, just write my number down. It's really important. Your mum calls me. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, and then I went downstairs and then my mum and dad and my brother, my other brother was sitting there and um, they sat me down and told me that my brother Christopher had killed himself um, pretty much the exact same time that I was at my lowest. Just this sort of horrible coincidence and yeah he didn't get through it the way I did and I think everyone was a lot more worried about me than they were about him. So you think that maybe that stopped people from realising how far gone Chris was? I think he didn't want people to see I think maybe at one point he didn't want to be stopped and yeah my my world just imploded I just was already at a point where I couldn't function and for that to happen was just you know, seeing my whole family suffer the same way that I was suffering was really hard. And to be at a stage where you, you know, are just constantly exhausted on a variety of meds, always constantly adjusting and in a very low point mentally, mm. can you process things like this? Can you process the death of your brother when you're in that space? No, I wasn't able to. And my, my feelings and my thoughts around it completely changed years later like I feel I feel bad saying it but at the time I I, for a while felt that that wasn't the biggest problem I had in my life it wasn't insignificant but I was like what I'm dealing with in my own head is worse than this you know it sucks he's gone but you know that's not the biggest problem I have which is silly because it was you know monumental but Mm. I think a lot of that was being detached from reality still being kind of quite psychotic in some ways and disassociated and heavy meds but also just trying to block it out emotionally you know Mm. I'm interested to know what you did with the rest of that day when you found out that your brother had killed himself how did you spend the rest of that day what what were your what were your things that you had to do it's such a weird one because there's there's no guidebook for this is there like this happens everything's destroyed it's on 
you know, it was on the news on the radio and that's how some people found out about it and then everyone comes around and brings flowers and then the school gets notified and that was the first time that that happened in our school and friends come around and no one knows what to say it's really awkward and they kind of give you hugs and blah blah and then they kind of leave but I went and played Mario Party with my two best friends in my in my room as if nothing had happened and I remember one of them said to me he's like this hasn't sunk in has it I'm like no no So have you ever been able to properly grieve or do you feel like grieving properly is tied to the time when someone dies? It took me a long time, but yes, I have. I've, I've grieved and, I, and I've healed. And I don't, for me, I don't believe it ever goes away entirely, but the best I have done with that is turn it into something that can help me and other people, I hope. But I felt left out of the grieving process. There was a memorial service at the school and then there was, you know, the community kind of came together and tried to, you know, do a whole lot of nice things for each other, but I felt left out and then eventually my memory started fading and I just kind of forgot him. It's interesting that you were on the phone to Lifeline when your brother was potentially taking his life. Yeah. And I guess that's a huge part of what saved you. So totally. if, if you're listening and it's always good to have Lifeline on 13, 11, 14 in your phone for yourself or for anyone else who might need it. We've got a track to take for the moment by Evanescence. Beautiful one. Beautiful and sad one. Which one do we have? I'm totally going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Hello. And, uh, yeah, just listen to it. <laughs> That's my introduction to it. <laughs> Don't try to fit 
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. My guest today is Nick Newling, and he bought on that song by Evanescence called Hello. And uh, we were just having a, a bit of a talk before that mic break about well, quite a quite an event in your life, quite a traumatic event in your life. And I know that you know when you're grieving and you're in that state of mind, it's going to be hard. But I assume it would have been really hard for your mum as well. I kind of want to know a little bit about yourself and your mum dealing with it together. Do you think you grieved as a family? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think with grief, I mean, there's not always rules that I know of, but I think togetherness is really important. But I think as a family, there were some really difficult times that we had to address together. Small details, like mum would always insist that we, or mum and dad always insist we have dinner at the at the table, never in front of the telly unless it was a special occasion. But then after he died, there's this one empty chair there, you know, so you do something else. And then we stopped having Christmas and then we started dreading his birthday rather than celebrating it. And it some of those things we had to just deal with as a family and other things, I would be quite reclusive at times. And uh, mum was also not doing well. Mm. You were um, both in very different places, I assume. We were. And and mum says um, in a book that I inadvertently was keeping her alive as well because she realised how much help I needed. Like, keep in mind, I was still talking a lot about killing myself um, throughout this time. And what what sort of held me back more at that time was all these concerns I had about what would happen to my family if I did that were realised in my brother you know mum mm. and dad did have to sell the house and and they did see me and did see him in every room they didn't know whether to clear his room out or leave it as it was and you know all these things I was like that's exactly what I thought would happen and I just felt more and more stuck there was just no way in and no way out mm, there was no option there mm. your your mum was actually considering suicide at mm. points wasn't she she was yeah and she says that you kept her alive yeah <laughs> I don't know if I credit myself like that but yeah she she does I think you definitely out of necessity sound, yeah it I sounds was, like you kept I was each a bit of a handful <laughs> yeah but I um I had to go to I actually got a lot worse before I got better and and I think that I mean it, it took a bit of time but I think that was a bit of a turning point but I had to go to another ward around that time I had to go to a locked ward um for about three months and that was I was pretty much just in ICU on suicide watch um and, yeah, I mean, it's just so funny thinking about this now because my life is really, really good now. It's the mm. complete opposite of this. Well, that's but. the thing. I just met you in the street the other day. This is how this show came to be. Uh, yeah. Shah, who does Wednesday uh, Arvos, just said, this guy is a great bloke. You should have him <laughs> on your show. Yeah, it was this perfect match accidentally <laughs> yeah. outside Caltech. And we had the most overjoyed chat of all time. We did, didn't and we? And look at where we are now. Look what happens now. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. I, I did I did want to know a little bit about, you know, you never got that diagnosis. All throughout those high school years, it seems like it took forever and ever and ever to just keep you alive. What was the turning point that gave you a hint that could give you a diagnosis? It was actually almost accidental, but not quite. I'd seen, I guess, maybe 10 doctors throughout this time. I was in uh, early, oh, sorry, late year 10. So my brother died when I was 16. He was just shy of 18. And I was in a ward maybe a couple of months after that. And 
the the doctor I had who was treating me for the last sort of nine months leading up to that was very honest in saying, I think you have this, but I don't know, but I'm going to stick with you until I know sort of thing, not just going to palm you off. And he did the, the rounds of the ward and just witnessed me having a manic high. Which takes the shape of what? Which can look like lots of different things for different people, but it's essentially part of bipolar disorder, which is um, when you have depression, but also the opposite of depression, the highs and the lows. And for me, it was being very creative, very kind of like not sleeping for days and frantically sort of like making stuff, whether it was like animating stuff or, you know, drawing or writing or whatever. And like in this ward though, like that wasn't even allowed to have my computer cord, you know, Um, but he just kind of walked in and saw me doing that. And he's like, oh, you're having a high. I'm like, no, this is me being back to normal. The meds are working, you know. So there were so many little hints of hope along the way, which were actually symptomatic of a condition where I just thought, oh, I'm back to my old self again. But as soon as he saw that, he's like, that never came up in in our conversations in a clinical setting. And I was like, I, I just didn't know that was a symptom. You yeah, know? I remember having someone on the show, um, Jazz Twimlow, who also has bipolar disorder, and he says, you never want to say... You know, go to the doctor and say, Doc, you know, I'm just feeling really happy and creative. Yeah. Is there a cure for that? Yeah. Can you fix my elation and glee? <laughs> <laughs> I feel too good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So when that happened, I, I went on a different um, different combination of meds and within a few months I was feeling heaps, heaps better, which was obviously wonderful, but also frustrating that that happened in year 11, not year 7. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd pretty much, I felt that I'd, not experience adolescence really. Mm. So um, I, I did want to actually talk a little bit about what you do now, mm. which is a lot of what you do now is talking to people in a way that you know relates to their experience in high school mm. and with mental illness. So what, what's your what's your kind of role? My thing. Your thing. <laughs> this all came about in a, in a roundabout way. It was going from being so scared to talk about it to getting a taste for talking about it to friends in Rivendell to doing that and some other sort of like um, therapy type things. And when I left school, I thought I'd really love to sort of use some of these skills I learned uh, doing theatre stuff and you know debating and stuff like that and apply it to my personal experience. So I asked my doctor if I can find an opportunity to do that and. I just started speaking. So that led to what I'm doing now, sort of like 10 years later, where basically I kind of just go out to, you know, schools and events and workplaces and whatever else. And pretty much just, I definitely don't like prepare in advance. I would be the worst person (laughs) to be on radio. I'm like, I'm just going to freestyle it. Totally. (laughs) Um, And I just basically talk about what happened and, and what that's like and how things have gotten better and hopefully provide a bit of hope and the goal really is to reduce the barriers of entry into seeking help and there's Mm. a lot of them for people yeah especially when you're in high school i mean i can't remember learning anything about mental illness in high school so i'm sure you're a big advocate for that happening totally Mm. yeah and also just kind of saying that you know this sort of gender nonsense of or even outside of that, it's kind of saying that it makes you, you know, you're a weak person if you have a mental illness. I'm like, no, you're a brave person for getting through it and getting help, you know. Totally. Yeah. Now, you you have throughout all this come to do some walking, some gallivanting around the globe. I have frolicked. Now, oh, you have frolicked a mountain or two. Oh, boy. Have you ever. <laughs> now, the <laughs> what's going to come out of this is that you guys are going to hear a musical track in a second mm. now. Bhutan. You were you were walking through Bhutan. 
I and was. <laughs> is is this is this the relevant story? Yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> so basically, in the last several years, I've been involved with these fundraiser trek type things, and basically you get a crew together of people who just do some fundraising events and whatever in in sydney or australia and then go off and do a bit of a a challenge it's kind of like a fun run type thing um and that's sort of we went to bhutan and did a trek and uh hilarity ensued Okay, that was um, a little bit shameless. So that's Mariah Carey. Totally relevant to play that now that she's dating James Packer. Born in by my guest today, which is Nick Newling. So originally that is from Prince of Egypt and then they just covered and it and got their egos parties. all over it. Totally. And I love how we've had so much fun talking that we're almost at the end. I feel like we need, like, there's a whole story behind that. but Yeah, um, which would go for <laughs> quite a while. And we've got but, three minutes. So but I'll just to be tell you here. basically that the idea of that was that it was sort of an overstated, look at this lovely vista opening up and let's just kind of overstate <laughs> and sing this silly song. And Anything good happens and then yes. you start singing, there can be and miracles. Anything at all, yes. <laughs> yeah. So actually what I want to know now is a little bit more about where you're at at the moment, what are you putting together? Because our next song is <laughs> quite the banger. Um, okay, I'll just fade that one out. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to happen. So 
What are you working on at the moment? So I'm working on this new app at Black Dog Institute, which is called Spark. It's still in prototype. We're not, we haven't released it just yet. But the idea is that it's all based upon values. So it's looking at uh, studies surrounding what what is the meaning behind meaning kind of thing what makes people really tick and understanding that when people's people understand their values and they align with what they're doing then life gets really really good and so we've basically created an app which asks you a bunch of questions and then kind of feeds back what your values are and then also provides some some actionable things to integrate those values into your life and so um, this next song has nothing to do with that app <laughs> on a branding marketing way, but for me personally, at this um, time in your life, so I'm like the reason why I love this song is because it's from uh, an awesome film called Office Space, and it's all about uh, just saying, yeah, I'm just gonna do what I want in life. And I find a lot of the value stuff is um, shown in people's careers, where they kind of like get stuck in a bit of a job that they're not interested in. And then how can they just go, nah, I want to do what is important to me. So the idea is you help people find out what is important to them and to kind of help them live that out through an app, which I think is ambitious totally. and awesome. So that's Spark and it's that's in and prototype it's, it's stage. In, yeah, so uh, watch this space soon. Yeah. All right. well, well, that's all we have time for on Out of the Box. Nick Newling has been my guest today. I've had such a great time talking to you, Nick. It's that was really great. Thank pleasant. you so much for having me. Let's hang awesome. out all the time. We should definitely do that. <laughs> yeah. All right, so here it is. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. It does. And a big fat language warning on this one <laughs> on Out of the Box. And it feels good to be a gangster. It feels good to be a gangster A real gangster-ass nigga plays his cards right A real gangster-ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth Cause real gangster-ass niggas don't start fights And niggas always got a high cap Showing on his boys how we shot him But real gangster-ass niggas don't flex nuts Cause real gangster-ass niggas know they got him And everything's cool in the mind of a gangster Cause gangster-ass niggas think deep up 365, yo, 24-7, cause real gangsta-ass niggas don't sleep. And all I gotta say to you, wanna be, gonna be, cocksucker, pussy, pranksters, is when the fire dies down, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. <laughs>
It feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster ass nigga knows the place. 